Right, but that's part of my job as podcast host is to <laughs> right. listen so, to annoying things and transform them. <laughs> if you hear an annoying noise, it is me. Yes, that is always the case. <laughs> oh, nice, nice. What do you have to say about fear, Anne, other than that you are afraid that we do not have a way to conclude this topic, which is what she said before I pressed the record button. I am afraid that this is going to run amok. Well, <laughs> but I think that's partly why we're entertaining. Do you consider yourself a very afraid person or a very not afraid person? That is a good question. I am mostly not afraid. Really? That is mm -hmm. not what you would have told me before. That's probably true. As when I met you, you said that your mother would sell her soul and everyone else's to keep the peace and that you were trying to learn not to be like that. Hmm. Have you succeeded? Mm -hmm. I've succeeded at that. <laughs> not everything, but that for sure. <laughs> I've succeeded at that. You know, when I think about fear, the number one thing or one of the number one things that people are afraid of in the world is public speaking. Mm -hmm. I have none of that. No, me neither. No, none. I never did. It was never a thing. And... I always kind of felt like maybe there was something weirdly wrong with me because I didn't get that gene. People often say about me that I am not afraid. I don't think that's true. I think I'm not afraid of the usual things. And so mm -hmm. then you mm -hmm. seem not afraid because the things that most people are afraid of, you find easy. Right. But the things that some people find easy, you find hard. Yeah, I would say most of my afraids are internal and not things I would typically voice to the world. So now I am regretting this choice of podcast. Because <laughs> I know something bad is going to happen here. <laughs> you, okay, I was about to tell you what your fears are. Maybe you should tell me what your fears are. No, no, Liz, <laughs> tell me. What are my fears? I would love to know. You are always afraid of doing the thing wrong. You're always like reading up so that you will say it right. Okay, that's true but it's not that I will do it wrong it's that somebody will see me doing it wrong oh why is right? that different I do not want to be wrong in public so public speaking okay public failing no good that has been one of the things I have had to learn to overcome I still mm -hmm. carry that feeling but it doesn't stop me from doing things anymore but like anytime in formation when you're doing something they like to call experiential learning <laughs> <laughs> which means you have to make the mistake in front of a group of people you have to practice things. And then the people say, you know what you should have done? You should have something, something. And in my heart, I want to say, you weren't there. You have no idea. You don't know how stupid that would have been. But you don't say that because then you get a bad mark. And then they say more things about how you shouldn't do in this moment. You're being defensive. Yeah, but I do have this goofy bad habit of like if I was taking a learn how to paint class, I would read the learn how to paint books and try it at home before I would go to the learn how to paint class because I don't want to learn how to paint from zero in front of other people. Is it because you're worried that people think ugh about you? I don't think I actually even ever think about that. Because if you're trying to impress them, I just want to be awesome. Okay, but you are impressing people wrong. So here's how you impress people. Oh, I'm so glad to know. People are not impressed by you being a good painter when you arrive at the class. Then they just don't like you. So what you want is you want to be a really painter and then it's the arc of your progression where you were a little caterpillar and now you are a magnificent butterfly. I can safely say that I have accomplished the original task, <laughs> that I have, I'm not a good painter <laughs> and the arc has yet 
to flourish <laughs> and I am no butterfly. So it looks like I've won this one. <laughs> so why do you think that we are not afraid of public speaking? What's different? Well, I come from a very big family and so all speaking was public speaking. <laughs> Oh, yeah. And and like my household, it was a competitive sport. There was four women, but each of them felt like three. <laughs> so it was 12, 12 sisters. I had 12 sisters. You have to use the muscles to get through in the competitive sport. Yeah, so there's yeah. more fear of being silent and invisible than there is of being seen. Mm. Also, mm. I was very bad at everything and at the bottom of every ladder for a good first 18, 19, 20 years. Like the first time I was good at anything, I was 19 years old. And so the what if it goes badly? I mean, it always went badly. That's right. fine. That's not unfamiliar to you, right? You're not worried about that. Yeah, that's not going to hurt you. <laughs> that, that's not powerlessness hurts you, but things going badly doesn't hurt you. Right. I've never had that, you know, butterflies in your stomach feeling like, you know, when you had to do projects in school with a group of people or something or get up and speak for the first time. I've never had that feeling. And that always seemed kind of weird to me. But you know when I do get that feeling? When? If I have to preach, and it's only preaching, it's not anything else. If I have to preach to a small group of people. Oh. And so like when you go to the fellowship committee to get stamped on the forehead that you are cooked enough to be a minister or when you are candidating for a role and you're secretly preaching to just a little teeny tiny search committee, mm -hmm. say, those two times I can remember feeling like my stomach was doing somersaults. And I think it's because they are too close. It's a weird interaction. And measuring, right? They're yeah. measuring. First of all, there's a whole bunch that's riding on it. And secondly, it's the wrong number of people for that kind of interaction. Right. It feels so weird and creepy and pretend to me to be preaching to a little teeny tiny group of people. It's like when you're having a conversation with one person and you're having a conversation with six people. It's a different skill that you are doing. Right. And so to try and do a six person conversation to one person doesn't feel right. Right. And plus those two situations I was just describing, I realized as I'm telling you this, that both of those were a test. Mm -hmm. I was trying to prove something, trying to prove my worthiness to a teeny tiny group of people. I think I feel safer if there's like 30 people in the room so somebody can convince the other ones I'm okay. <laughs> Take a chance on her. What the heck? Little teeny tiny rooms, not so good. <laughs> so a combination of public speaking and a test, maybe that's the combo that gets me. Yeah, I'm more afraid in workshops. Well, I'm not afraid. No, I'm just bad at them. I'm better at preaching than workshops. That's why I lean so heavily on you. Okay, I'm going to challenge that. What do you mean? Why do you think you're bad in workshops? I don't know. I just did. I don't think it goes well. Okay, here's my challenge. Have you been leading workshops that you want to lead? Yeah, I never lead anything. I never do anything I don't want to do because nobody <laughs> pays me. <laughs> huh, that's funny because you have so much to offer. And you are so interesting. It just is funny to me that you feel like you're bad at that. I think that a workshop is about drawing something out in another person. And oh. I am not as good at that as you are because I am you are all about more you. of a self-centered princess than you are. I can't believe you said that out loud and didn't wait for me to say it. What the hell? Dude. You said I don't talk enough. <laughs> Uh, I am more narcissistic than you are. Either that or you're better at hiding it. I don't know. La, la, but la, 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 la. I find people fascinating. I like hearing about people and learning about them. But mm -hmm. I am not very good at drawing out. Well, you know, you have to tell me to ask people how do they feel about that and don't hand them an yeah, app. But once, once, okay, I didn't have to tell you, you asked me what to do. And then <laughs> you do it now. So you know how to do it. I only asked you what I was supposed to do because you kicked me under the table. And I was like, why are you kicking me? <laughs> 
Fair enough. It's not the same as asking for advice. Why are you kicking me is not a generalized request for advice. Life is a lot better now that I can text you. There's less bruises, <laughs> less thunking noises. So what what are you afraid of? I was thinking about that. Um, I don't know. I don't experience a lot of fear. My Definitely I look at my behavior and think that was governed by fear, but I have trouble thinking of times when I felt afraid. Why? Do you know what I'm afraid of? No, I just want you to say something on the internet like I said something on the internet. (laughs) I used to have an anxiety problem when I Mm -hmm. was 15 or 16 and I was treated for it like we took a cognitive behavioral class Mm -hmm. and the treatment was very effective. Now it may have been that I also that I moved into a good foster home at that time so a lot of things went better in my life. Good combo. It doesn't really matter which one it is because my experience was this fear problem is now solved. Whether it was from the class or it was from coincidence it was because I believed it to be solved. So this is a not useful tip for people who have an anxiety thing going on because we don't know what the answer is. Move into a good foster home and take it. Well, changing your situation helps a lot. I think also um, cognitive behavioral therapy for anxiety is actually quite effective. When you take a psychology class, you look at the statistics for all of the different solutions that we have and Mm -hmm. they're all roughly the same as a placebo therapy. Like. We don't have a lot of great therapeutic solutions. And the one exception to that is cognitive behavioral therapy for anxiety, which is actually quite effective. Liz from the future here listening to that statement in the editing room, and I can't believe that I made it. Just reminding everyone who might be taking their medical information from Randall's on a podcast that while I do have a psych degree, it's 20 years old and any information you're getting from me is first of all way outdated and secondly has had 20 years in my memory to degrade. As I understand it, cognitive behavioral therapy for anxiety is still seen to be quite effective, but the statement I made about all the other ones being ineffective, even if that was accurate when I learned it and maybe don't take your therapy advice from undergrads in the first place, Even if it were accurate then, those therapies have had 20 years to improve and ugh, don't take medical advice from me. Hey folks, while we're on the subject of disclaimers, I just wanted to throw a little note here that the next discussion is going to contain subjects like suicidal ideation, intervention, and hospitalization. If those subjects are uncomfortable for you or they're just not your cup of tea, please go ahead and skip to 1830. Uh, It probably was the treatment, but it was super effective in my case. And I remember thinking that it had overshot and I was too cured of fear then Mm -hmm. because I don't connect cause and effect very well. That's part of the sort of ADHD style of brain. I don't scan the world for vigilant things that might happen to me. I waltz through the world and my sister Wendy runs ahead of me and scans for problems and deals with them for me. So I'm not strong on that. And which is one thing, the one thing I did want to say is not enough fear is also quite maladaptive. Mm-hmm. I have to consciously remind myself to think it through. So like even little things like, I don't know if you've witnessed me trying to take pans out of the oven without oven mitts. I I feel I would have remembered that. <laughs> it took a long time for me to remember to use oven mitts and I have a lot of burns on my hands. So when something doesn't turn out well, it doesn't always take. And so I have to reason my way through and remind myself to act as though I am afraid a lot of the time. So if you are someone who suffers with fear, there is an adaptive nature to it. Getting rid of it entirely is not good either. Mm -hmm. So watch out for that cognitive behavioral therapy. Don't take too much. (laughs) I, I definitely found 
too much anxiety to be debilitating. Although I do remember when you took me into the hospital, when I went into the hospital with the mm -hmm. suicidal thoughts, and the guy said, are you afraid? And I said, yes, I'm constantly afraid and I'm constantly guilty. And then I said, I don't know if you remember this, but that's just my personality. And you looked at me and you were like, no, it's not. I do remember this. You yeah. are not consciously... <laughs> You are maladaptively rarely fearful and maladaptively rarely guilty. <laughs> well, and the reason we were sitting in that room is because you were not presenting as you. Oh, yeah? Right? Because, I, you know, if I felt like there was nothing to be afraid of, if I felt like you were yeah. normal you, everyday you, yeah. we wouldn't have needed to go to the emergency room. But you were not everyday you. The thoughts you were having were overtaking the regular parts of you. So I can say that is a day I was afraid. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Because you mean so much to me, and I could see with some certainty that you were in danger. Did you know it before I said that I had suicidal thoughts? Did you know something was up before then? So for anyone who doesn't remember the story, I was in Saskatoon for a church conference that Liz was also attending. I was staying in a hotel and Liz messaged me, can I come see you at your hotel? Mm -hmm. And right away, that is a clue <laughs> because normally Liz would be messaging me to say, why are you not here? It's like four hours before the conference starts. <laughs> So when you said, can I come see you at your hotel while I was getting ready to go to the conference, I know you missing conference, <laughs> hmm, something important is happening. You coming to me. Yeah, just put me on high alert. I didn't know what the thing was until you told me what the thing was. But I know you to be someone who mostly manages your stuff, right? Not oh. necessarily the traditional route. But <laughs> I do you... not think of myself as someone who mostly manages my stuff. Well, you don't also manage it in necessarily the way I would manage it, <laughs> right? You have your own methods of managing. And this was a moment when you had a thing that needed support that you did not have a solution to. And like when you explained to me, you'd been wrestling with this for a while. Yeah. And so I like to think, you know, you waited till I came to town so I could go sit with you in the emergency room. But I think I think I probably did. Yeah. I, I mean, you go you go to the person who will give you the advice you want, right? Yes. And I think part of it was I knew my brain wasn't working and I knew that all I could do was say, tag you're it. It's no good. Right. <laughs> like all I right. could do was run up the white flag. Yeah. You weren't actually the first person that I had told that mm -hmm. you were the first person that I said that to that didn't tell me I was fine right and this I want to say this clearly because I think sometimes when a person is not okay they do reach for help mm -hmm. and it's everything you can do to reach for help and then if it doesn't work you have to reach again and it's really hard but you have really to keep hard. reaching until really you find hard. someone who's going to take the baton when you hand them the baton right and and then they don't have to carry the baton forever they just help you find someone who will help you carry the baton well, yeah like I was there temporarily and I think I wasn't afraid in the moment well that's because you weren't gonna leave me unsupervised you I remember that <laughs> you were quite clear you were not okay you were not you you were not allowed to make the decisions now mm -hmm. you'd made one decision to come to me and now I was taking over all the decisions so we got in the car and we went to the emergency room where we waited for 427 hours where we had to continually silently inside of me make the decision to not leave Right? Because the temptation to leave when you're waiting forever, it's like, you know, I'm okay enough, right? You, When you're given the opportunity to leave, you often take it. When people had asked that. Right. You want to go and come back when it's not so busy or just see, yeah. And I couldn't. I couldn't. I had to stay. And you don't get specialty, like, emergency 
psychiatric assessments unless you go to the emergency room, right? They're so yeah. backed up in their practices. You're not going to get in and get that. There had been a number of car accidents, I think. So it was like several hours because of that. Uh, or it was just a million stupid things happening. My fear was if we don't do this right, something terrible could happen. Yeah. And I'm going to go home again. Maybe not today or tomorrow. I would have stayed as long as I needed to if I felt like that was the life or death decision. But at some point, I have to go home to my life. And yeah. then I have to go home knowing I left you behind. So if we don't do this right, this <laughs> terrible thing could come true. Mm -hmm. That's the fear. This gnawing, here is one time where you really don't get to make a mistake. That must have been scary. It was because I love you so much. And if you had said to me, you know what, we can try again another day. I, I would have tied you to the chair. I was not moving. I knew I had to stay. If the hospital had said, you know what, you are not bad enough and we are too busy, come back tomorrow, I would have tied us both to the chair and said, nope, get me a knife, I'll start cutting things. We'll see what it takes to get into a room. Uh, great. I'm glad to know that you I had that on my in my corner. I would have done anything because the stakes were so high. You must have been in so much physical pain that many hours. I didn't even know that, that like, I was actually the happiest I'd ever been sitting in that chair. Well, not that I'd ever been, but that I'd been in a while. I remember thinking that I was very happy because all I had to do was sit in the chair. Like, right. this, the right. problem was going to be managed. Right. But you must have been physically uncomfortable. Like, you didn't eat. You didn't, like, my passage of time was weird. I didn't know that that much time passed. Right. We didn't have anything to eat or drink. There wasn't like a machine there or anything even. And my arthritis was really bad then and everything. But none of that mattered. Like, you know, wow. in an emergency, nothing matters except the emergency. <laughs> right, but usually the emergency has like flames and yelling and excitement. The emergency isn't sit in this chair for eight hours and starve. <laughs> well, still high stakes. So not so great when I did get to bed. Not so great when I woke up the next morning, take lots of meds and you know, hope for the best. I remember asking you at the time, will you be okay? And you're like, I'm fine. Yep, and then I said, I'm fine. What about enough to eat? Because I knew there'd been some hours that had passed and you said, oh no, it's okay. I have a protein bar. And now I am realizing that that was too many hours for one protein bar to do the trick. Well, fortunately, I have enough sustenance built in. I can live for months. <laughs> Right, but I imagine that's uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm sure if we started to die from dehydration, the hospital would have coughed up some water or an IV. <laughs> I was very afraid then, which maybe was part of how I knew that my brain wasn't working right. When I was 18 or 19, I was very afraid that I was failure as a human being and just faulty because I all of my experiences up to that point had been of being a faulty failure of a human being. And I was good at nannying with the family that I eventually married into, Gary and, and the boys. And it was the first time I was good at something. And mm -hmm. then I had built up this entire life around that, that I was a church lady and I was a stay-at-home mom and I fulfilled all the expectations of the family and I was married and I was going to stay that way and I had all these different things. Right. And so I think that I did have a fear there because I was failing to accomplish that life. Right. I remember us the next day sitting down and me resigning, you resigning me from a bunch of volunteer commitments. Like there was no consequences to this, but I was very afraid of that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because at some level I knew that that was the beginning of like a year later I was moving out, right? That if I right. gave up at all on putting my head down and trying to fulfill these expectations and thought about anything too carefully, it was all going to crumble. What I didn't understand was that the crumbling 
would be good and it would be okay. But what you did know on some level was that the not crumbling was hurting you, right? On some level, deep down underneath, you knew that the not paying attention to whatever it was that was getting you was hurting you. I saw that as a reason to be guilty. I did mm. not see that as my, this situation is failing me. I saw it as I am failing. Right. And that is a really interesting, I had not actually ever said this situation is failing me rather than I am failing about any situation ever right in foster care I'd be like I have failed get kicked out I have failed get kicked out so were you afraid when you moved out I was convinced that everything good that I had ever been able to do happened because I was married to Gary I was mm. convinced that I was mentally ill and cognitively disabled because I had been so far as I could tell and that the only reason I had survived was being married to Gary mm. and so there was that moment after I shortly after I moved out I had vertigo which was very scary which was like it would shake my head and I would fall down and start throwing up because I was motion sick and I remember thinking what if this is me now that I've left that other life it was a terrible decision I thought what if this is just who I am now and mm -hmm. all I can be is a profoundly disabled person on the floor who can't move or do anything and then I realized that I wasn't afraid of that because I didn't think that was a bad person to be like I thought do I judge people who are like that no I don't in fact I'm very opposed to ordering people on a ladder in that way right. and so then I wasn't afraid to be that person anymore so mm -hmm. starting in that moment I wasn't afraid and I rolled over and I wrote at the top of a sheet of paper because I couldn't get up but I could reach my iPad it wasn't paper um, my own metric and I wrote down all of the things that I thought made a good person rather than the life that I was supposed to live into right. and I thought I'm gonna work to achieve this list that I wrote and then I wasn't afraid anymore but that was the first time in my life that I instead of saying I'm not good enough to do what I should said what I should isn't good for me right. which felt blasphemous right so I asked that question because you didn't tell me before you moved out right because I thought everybody would be very upset with me it didn't occur to me that you might be supportive have you <laughs> met me I know I know <laughs> <laughs> I know. I accidentally told my sister Greta and she was said, oh, what can I do to help? And I was stunned. Like I expected nothing but judgment. Right. Cognitive dissonance because it's not what you're expecting right. to hear. And and then that gave me the courage to tell my other sister. Everybody I told was like, what can we do? How can we support you? But I felt that people who leave marriages should be punished. For I was, right. I don't know what the hell that was about. <laughs> right. Right. Do you think that about other people who leave marriages? No, although I certainly was more judgy. I, I thought there was value in the inherent act of making a marriage last. Right. The same way you might think there's value in natural childbirth or there's value in running a marathon, which isn't to say that you judge anyone who doesn't run a marathon, but you're very proud of what you did. And that is no longer the case. <laughs> I love the sneery, snotty tone your voice has taken on as you as you give those examples. Thank goodness I'm not a marathon runner, but I do think there is value in natural childbirth if that is an option I think for you. you had natural childbirth, right? But you know what? You were not judgy about my epidural. I was not judgy. And as a matter of fact, I thought, wow. <laughs> Hmm. Too bad I didn't know how that goes so well. That's how I felt about divorce. <laughs> the way you felt about your natural childbirth. And then when you saw the epidural, right. you're like, wait, that's an option? Right. I never expected to feel proud of it. Now I feel proud of it. Okay, so now I have another question. Mm -hmm. So there you are. You're lying on the floor and you've had this experience of vertigo and you can't get up and you think maybe this is my future. And you decide I'm going to write down the Liz metric for what makes a good person. Mm -hmm. So that list of things, is it still the same today? Like... 
Does your list hold or has it adjusted since then? Well, I've accomplished them all. I assume I need a new list now. (laughs) Okay. Because what I was going to ask you was, do you feel any kind of fear or anxiety about not living up to the list? But since you have accomplished them all, clearly you picked some low-hanging fruit. That is not true. The list was more, what do I want for my life? For example, I had all of my eggs in one basket in my relationship with Gary. What I would think Mm -hmm. of as a friendship, he would think of as an emotional affair. So all of my eggs were in the basket. And then, so another one was, I don't want to have all of my psychological eggs in one basket again. Right. So these are not, these are not hard things to accomplish. I didn't say I'm going to scale Mount Everest or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So it did take a few years. Like one of them was getting my eating sorted and that only happened in the last year. Mm -hmm. Another one was having a career which was a combination of changing the definition of what career was right, and right. achieving things. So right. I guess maybe the list did change. Anything I didn't achieve came off the list or was altered to like spiritually I achieved it. <laughs> so this was really a tool. It wasn't any kind of threat or weapon, right? It was it no, was the thing. it was a gift. It really fed you. Yeah, it and was a it gift. Encouraged you and you used it as a thing to help you get where you wanted to be and you knew you could change it. Oh yeah, it was replacing the old list. It was like replacing a sliver with a band-aid. Aw, that's a nice image. Yeah. I like it. (laughs) In a conversation recently that you and I were both at, we heard something from two people who publicly identify as trans. So one of them is a trans woman and one of them is a trans man. And when we were talking about fear with them, they were talking about how their perceptions of fear might be a little bit different. Mm -hmm. The trans man was telling us that when he presented as female earlier in his life, he had the experience of all the crap that women get, right? The catcalling and the harassment and the nonsense. And so he's moving into more of a power position by being able to be seen now as his male self, but that he is super aware of that happening to women and super, not protective, but like standing up for them. So that's a characteristic that isn't necessarily super common of the average male. Right. Yep. But then (laughs) the trans woman said, you know, I'm not, I'm aware that women have fear. I'm aware of all of the things that women know, like that you don't walk down dark streets alone in the middle of the night, that that's not safe technically, that you should keep your keys in your hand just in case you need a weapon, that kind of things. She's aware of that, but she doesn't feel that fear. Mm -hmm. But then she said many of her friends who are trans women are more afraid, more afraid than the average woman. I would assume that it would be terrifying to be a trans woman because their risk of violence is much higher. Right. It's a super high danger. And yet she doesn't feel that way. And so it's not um, like you can't say, oh, it's because she lived a part of her life presenting as male because the other trans women in her experience didn't carry those characteristics forward. And they are aware of the super supreme danger that they are in in a judgy mean culture. I think fear is, we assume that fear is directly proportionate to consequences, but it's actually a terrible estimation. So Mm -hmm. I am not ever afraid walking down an alleyway um, because I was not social. I was socialized as though I were a man in that respect. We were taught as James women that we are huge and we will kick anyone's ass. I've only recently discovered that in fact, my assumption that I would win in a fight is not true, which is not that I've gotten into a fight. Your ass kicking (laughs) skills are overrated. But but John at one point was like, um, uh, 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 you you wouldn't. 
was like, what? And he's like, you have no training at all. So the fact that you're large wouldn't help. And I was like, no, no, come at me. And he said, well, try to punch me. And I tried to punch him. And then he set me gently on the ground. It will only be helpful if they are small enough for you to pick up. (laughs) John weighs quite a bit less than me. And when I tried to hit him, he gently set me down on the ground. And then we went over some self-defense skills that I did not know that I had not had. But I was not taught to be afraid. And so I wasn't. I was taught to be afraid when I get in a car. So the fact that you are more afraid when you are walking down an alley at night than when you get in a car to drive to work in the morning mm-hmm. is maladaptive. You are far, in far more danger in the car. So right. I, I think that... that. That's very helpful. <laughs> but you Yay. won't be afraid in the car because you're not taught to be afraid in the car. Mm-hmm. This was... Selesh had this when he came here and I was like, how come you're not more afraid of lions? He's like, eh, people hardly ever get killed by lions. And then he said, but you guys get in these cars and you drive down the freeway like zoom, zoom, zoom. Boom. How are you not all terrified? And that's Mm -hmm. when I realized the extent to which fear is very much a social construct because bad things happening is actually so rare that we have to learn it from each other what to be afraid of. Yeah, so all of this kind of says to me that there's something, maybe it's the way we're socialized, maybe it's genetic, like is it the nature or the nurture or the combination of the two, but some of us are just less afraid mostly and some of us are maybe more afraid. Some of it also has to do with what you are socialized to be afraid of. So people will sometimes sometimes ask me, do I experience jealousy? Because mm-hmm. I'm polyamorous, so it doesn't bother me if my partner sleeps with other people. And I would say, absolutely, I experienced jealousy. Just I wasn't taught that sex is a thing to be jealous about. Right. So like, just like, do you experience jealousy when people see Lori's hair? Not really, because you weren't taught to. But there are places where a woman's partner would be jealous. Usually those partners would not be women. But you know. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, it's a social construct. And right. I think that fear works the same way. And sometimes you think someone's fearless when they're actually socialized to be afraid of different things so Mm -hmm. sometimes you will say oh Liz you're not afraid of failing that's not because of who I am it's because I veered where you went through seminary which is very heavy Unitarian seminary is very heavy on let's learn everything let's do everything well so that we're perfectly anti-oppressive which is ironic in a number of ways whereas the world I went into is content creation where you're not taught to be afraid of making a bad video a bad video is just irrelevant nobody will ever see it the algorithm will kill it and you try again and you Mm -hmm. you are supposed to make about 60 videos before any of your videos will be good for example that's the Hmm. youtube wisdom so you make 60 shitty ones you improve with every one no one will ever see them Hmm. that kills i can see you making the face right now i can't put 60 shitty videos on the internet what are you talking about no actually what i was thinking was (laughs) wow i better get going with the bad videos so i can get to the good one 60 videos yep and even our podcast is the beginning few i'm like but i remember at the time thinking well you know what though they have to suck and these are real good for the sucky beginning ones well, and they know it's the beginning and we're not trained professionals and we're making it up as we go along. Yeah, so. and in 40 podcasts and we're going to get the hang of it. <laughs> Thanks for sticking with us. <laughs> I promise 40 podcasts from now we're going to get really good. A couple of years from now, everything's <laughs> going to be great. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> So for the most part, I'm not really afraid of being in a car. Although after the time that I was in a car that was hit by a drunk driver going down the wrong side of the street in a low speed chase with the police, um, I did not see it coming. And that rattled my confidence, but not my confidence around cars, but my confidence around seeing it coming. Oh, interesting. So at that time in my life, a number of things happened, which we do not need to go into at this moment. Each one of them I could have characterized by, well, I didn't see that coming. Hmm. And this was like the big bang culmination of, hmm, and another didn't see it coming. And it didn't 
make me self-conscious about riding in cars. It made me self-conscious about my awareness and my judgment. Mm. But for the most part, I am not afraid of cars. When you flew off that cliff and were going to die, were you afraid? No. And that has shaped my life, right? That's given me a piece of understanding of myself that when I thought I was going to imminently die, I was not afraid. I was peaceful. I Mm. surrendered in that moment. So maybe that's part of why. Maybe that's just my nature. I have no idea. It was my first experience of flying off a cliff without without a, without a rope. But I was thinking about airplanes. So I think way more people are afraid to fly than are afraid to drive. Mm-hmm. And I am not afraid to fly. I love being in a plane flying. I like the whooshy feeling in your tummy when gravity is interrupted and that giant silver hulking piece of metal leaves the ground. And I like the bumpity bumpity bump landing of like, done. And I don't worry in between. I... I read the books that I should have read for the MFC. But so many more people are afraid of flying, it seems, than riding in a car, where when you go back to the odds, you are way more likely to die in a car crash than you are on a plane, which apparently I have learned does not comfort the person sitting next to you on the plane. (laughs) The problem with a plane crash, Anne, is the seeing it coming thing. So the time between I'm going to die and I am dead is quite long in a plane crash. Like if you plummet from the sky from 10,000 feet, I can't do this math on my own, but it's not instantaneous. Are you counting like all the content warnings we're going to need on this podcast? (laughs) This is not helpful for people who are afraid of flying in planes because you have that long, slow decline to your doom where you're going to smash and explode into a million pieces. One of Eric's favorite hobbies is to explain to me the details of plane crashes. Oh, how lovely, Eric. Thank you. I asked him, does it make you afraid to fly then? And he goes, no, no, no. These are stories about all of the things that they have seen go wrong and learned and made better so they would never happen again. Like every plane crash story I tell you couldn't happen anymore because they analyze it and they fix it and they make it better. There's a metaphor in there. He's so optimistic. (laughs) He is. So come back to my story. Why? Why do you think it is that more people seem to be afraid of flying than afraid of driving in the car? Because you have to drive in the car all the time, so you become desensitized. Hmm. We become desensitized to whatever we have to always do. Hmm. I wonder if it's also sometimes about, like, you have absolutely no control. Like, some people are a good driver or, like, confident driver, but they are an anxious passenger. Yeah, I find it reassuring that you are not driving the plane. (laughs) Right. I am not a better driver than the pilot is pilot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I have been in two accidents. The pilot usually zero. Right. Hopefully. And they fly every day and I drive as rarely as possible due to that accident situation. They probably have more tests too than the other drivers on the road. I hit the curb three times in my driver's test. And they passed you? Yeah, because I hit it on the way out of the parallel park, which apparently you can hit the curb lots of times. Also, I was like a 20-some-year-old young mom so that I could drive the kids to soccer practice. So, Oh, so it doesn't matter because it's just that short distance where most of the accidents occur. (laughs) I don't know how much of the driver's test is about are you capable of driving versus are you a responsible person who is very careful about risks? Because who will pay your insurance so when you hit somebody, everything's going to work out Well, the reality is everywhere, it's like making YouTube videos. When you start driving, you're a 
driver and the only way to become a better driver is to drive a bunch like that's just Mm -hmm. how it goes and the the only way you can mediate that is to be very aware of it like as you be aware like I'm good at driving to the store that doesn't mean that now that it has snowed I'm still a good driver right like you need to build up a bunch of so only drive at the ability that you're able to but everyone is a crappy driver when they start I just didn't drive enough to improve I'm, I'm okay now. I'm an okay driver. I used to be terrible, but now I'm okay. So we don't want to ride with the new pilot. Is that what we're saying? Well, they run them through a whole bunch of stuff. Also, <laughs> I know a lot about this because you're like, the normal flying isn't hard. The dealing with it when it goes wrong is what they're training for. I'm so. pretty sure the machine handles most of the normal flying. Yeah, I mean, there's things that I couldn't do it. Like that whole thing where anybody could fly a plane. No, you couldn't. But the spot where you really need skill, they've is carrying out those drills when something goes wrong. And so every pilot is new because if something goes wrong in your plane, that will be the first time that pilot has dealt with that. Oh, God. (laughs) Sorry. That was really, really (laughs) helpful. So anyways, your chances of dying of being attacked in an alley is almost nothing. (laughs) This is why I'm not afraid of the alley is because Eric follows me around telling me about all the plane crashes. Nobody follows me around telling me about the alley. Do you know, the mantra I heard from my mother my entire childhood was, it's not you, dear, that I'm worried about. It's all those other people out there. Don't get in cars with people I haven't approved. Don't get in cars with your young friends who have just learned how to drive and are terrible drivers, just like Liz said, because it's not you I'm worried about, dear. I'm sure your judgment is fine. It's those other people. Do you know what I think now? What? It was all a lie. She was worried about your judgment. She was worried <laughs> about my judgment. She would sell her soul in yours to keep the peace. <laughs> this is what I hear. Just don't do anything, honey, and then nothing bad will happen and everything will be okay. Do you know why my dad never taught me the basics of self-defense? Because he, you could beat him up? No. <laughs> At the time, I asked him, well, maybe. I asked about carrying weapons and things like that. And I think I could have beat up my dad even without being taught the basics of self-defense. My dad was not a big fighter. <laughs> I remember asking, should I be carrying anything like mace or anything? And he said... I think that you are much safer if there is no weapon involved because I think if it comes down to a fight, we would definitely lose. He said, because you girls, by including my mom in this, are so good at posturing and socialing your way out of a conflict, which is true. I've postured and socialed my way out of a lot of things. My mother has socialized and she terrifies the shit out of everyone and escapes every time. And he said, you don't want it to come down to a fight so you don't want to be carrying a weapon because it will force you to use your social skills skills to get out although it was well understood I didn't have social skills when I was a kid maybe he was just willing to let me go he had four <laughs> and the other I got three warning number eight <laughs> the other three were real winners too <laughs> I'm so sorry Adwin <laughs> it's okay oh no that has to stay Adwin who edits the podcast is in my family she is my niece but she is the daughter of one of the winners She's a keeper. so she should be fine she's a keeper <laughs> Anyway, Anwen, when it comes what should to- we be afraid of? We should be afraid of people hearing this episode of the podcast. And when I think that maybe you should take a class or something about self-defense and not rely on what you were taught by our family. I think what we have established here is that you and I are lousy ambassadors for fear. <laughs> maybe we've established that when you said, I don't know, maybe we should do the episode that we did the prep for. And I said, no, no, we should wing it. We'll be fine. And then I, I started with, I have an inadequate sense of fear. It keeps me from doing I, I, I go ahead and charge ahead when I should not. Maybe you should have taken that with a grain of salt. Mm, I did. I always do. It's just I think I need a bigger salt shaker. 
wait, wait, don't go, Liz from the future here. I have two very important announcements. If you are listening to this on May 3rd as it comes out, know that tomorrow, May 4th, I'm going to be doing the reflection at Sanctuary Boston. So I'm going to be telling the story of the UU Hysterical Society and how we always refer to the practical joke gone wrong, but we never tell the story of that practical joke. I'm going to be talking about all of that stuff. And the reflection I'll be giving will not be the best part of the service, not by a long shot. Sanctuary Boston worship services are like the worship services I want to be when I grow up. They're filled with incredible music and they have connection in this really unique way, even though it's Zoom, which makes that so hard. And they have candles and that's where I go to be filled up. And I can't recommend them enough. Details about that will be in the show notes. Okay, second announcement. This one is a little bit premature and also probably a little bit rambly, but I can't help myself from making it. So we've alluded to this time in my life where I left seminary and I was going through this whole, the world is changing, how on earth am I going to adapt? How am I going to make the time I spend on social media more meaningful? What, how could UUism change shape into the future? All that stuff. And when I was going through that, there was nothing there to help me. I mean, there's stuff about how to do social media, but that's more from a marketing lens. And there's stuff about how to do ministry, but that doesn't really include social media in a very meaningful way. So this stuff I was doing at the intersection of ministry and the online world and the things that were changing, there was nobody who could teach me how to do that. And I remember promising to myself that if I figured it out, I would make resources for people who were where I had been. I wouldn't say that I figured it all out, but mirth and dignity has grown to a point and the hysterical society has grown to a point where I think we do actually have quite a bit of expertise in how to figure out what your online thing is going to be, how to make interactions online more meaningful and avoid flame wars, how to make things that go viral without selling your soul to the algorithm gods, all those sorts of things. So I've made a podcast which is called Reach. It's not an Anne and Liz thing. It's just a Liz thing. It's half me telling like the emotional story of the journey of it and funny stories from that and sad stories from that sometimes. And then it's also half guerrilla tips for how to figure out how to navigate in the world. And that's from a UU lens, but this is something that everybody from like librarians to taxi drivers are thinking about how the world is changing and how we're going to adapt. So that informational piece is part like nuts and bolts, how to make things viral and social media style stuff, part this is how to think about things differently. And then it's interspersed with lots of stories because I'm a story person and I imagine so are you or you would not be listening to this podcast and you sure wouldn't have made it to the end of this announcement. So if you're interested in that, there's also information in the show notes. It doesn't actually come out today as this podcast comes out. It comes out also on May 4th, which is tomorrow. So you would be one of the first listeners and I would be really grateful because I'm very nervous. <laughs> okay, back to the outro. And when? Thanks, Liz. I am also a story person and I've also started a podcast called Daddy Daughter Talk Show with my dad, who is Liz's brother-in-law. And we talk about physics and intergenerational trauma and funny stories and we laugh at ourselves a lot and make tons of references so if that's your deal as liz said i am one of the keepers in the family so you should come check us out this episode however was a mirth and dignity production written and produced by liz james and ann barker it is only possible with the incredibly generous support of our patreon members which you can become a patreon member if you go check it out in the link in the description and it is edited by yours truly and 
This lovely music that has been playing for these ugh, four minutes of announcements is by Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks for joining us.